Oh, that's Ronnie Mauricio. He's a baby met. We he's were, one of the baby nuts. He's yes. one of the baby nuts. I listened to a few podcasts to try and make sure I was up to snuff. I appreciate that. I'm Jesse from the internet. Uh, this is Pod at the Park, and with me tonight is uh, Lindsay from the internet, is how I know her. Uh, but also, she's urban planner, political activist, uh, former political candidate, and that is what I want to ask her about first, just to get out of the way, because uh, we've had a cordial time up until now, and I fear that this is going to ruin it, but also I need to ask this question. Lindsay Boylan. Lindsay, um, you ran for office in the city of New York. Um, what? I've been thinking about how I would ask this all day, and now I'm at the point of this, and I don't know. Um, why would a person want to be involved? Like, you ran for Manhattan Borough President, and, and um, you seem an otherwise cool and normal person. <laughs> What in the world uh, happened in your brain that was like, New York City politics, that's where I want to be? You mean aside from like, you know, what for punishment? <laughs> yeah, you know, I have always loved how you make things work. Um, and especially like my, my love of, of cities, how they work and urban planning has kind of followed me my whole life. I've moved all over the place as, as we've talked about. Um, I got really interested in urban planning when I was at Wellesley studying Hurricane Katrina, how to rebuild New Orleans, and I've been involved in politics in New York State, uh, which I'm sure you'll ask me about. See, this is so much more interesting. Uh, just short of the wall. I've been involved. Brett Beatty almost got one. Another one of the baby meds. And he's the youngest guy out yeah. here. He's 23. Mm -hmm. He's pretty badass. Um, I view politics and running for office as the most difficult part of the good stuff that you want to do, which is make cities work. And running for borough president is all about trying to make the city work better. And I thought that would be really neat and a fun challenge. I'm a big nerd, and I really love that. Um, I'd say running for office is the least fun part except meeting people. What the, the natural follow-up question to this is that you ran for borough president. Um, I've lived in New York for my entire life, um, except for college. What what the heck does a borough president do other than have their name on the welcome to this borough sign on the side of the bridge? Well, so our city has, what, 10 million plus people. That is the biggest metro area in the country. Um, one of the bigger cities in the world. And so when you think about managing that kind of place, you don't just have one mayor. You have people that run, basically, smaller segments of the city. I mean, Brooklyn used to be, turn of the century, the last century, a different city, right? 1898. Um, so, so the borough president's job, in a lot of ways, um, is to try and bring all of these things together. You advocate with the mayor, you work with the city council members that represent your borough, you work with even state legislators because a lot of, as you know, what needs to happen in the city actually gets resolved in Albany. Um, and it can be, and it is now because of a number of mayors and leaders who tried to wash down the power of it, kind of an amorphous job. But I think smart people can do do really important things even when a job is undefined. And so the borough president's job, a lot of it's about, frankly, urban planning and urban management. And uh, that's where I spent most of my career. And so I thought it was really neat. I think Mark 
Mark, Mark Levine is doing a good job, and so I don't have a problem with him. But, um, you know, I, I love the political process. I love um, being competitive, and so I didn't mind if I thought someone else could do a job. I thought I could do a better job. <laughs> I don't know what a better job would constitute still, but I've, I've never been at, I've never been who's like, had an opinion on the performance of their borough president because oh, I don't I think, think any of us know what they do. Well, I, th- I will say, I think he, this particular one is doing a great job. Um, and I'll say because he had a lot of experience in the city, you know, working in the city council mm-hmm. during COVID. And so I think a lot of managing out of COVID, um, he's kind of tried to take it upon himself to figure out how we live um, in, a, in, a, in a world dealing with some of the impact of COVID. So um, I do think he's doing a good job. Um, I think what really inspired me about the role and still is most interesting is how we use public spaces and who they're for and how we prioritize the least advantaged. I mean, I think that's the whole point of government is to make sure that people with the least, um, the fewest options have the most consideration when you consider resources. And uh, I think that really never happens, whether we're talking about budget cuts in city education, parks, public spaces, um, things that make our kids' lived experience be wonderful, contribute to really safe cities, affordable housing, and the like. And um, the borough president's job is in many ways to think about a lot of these things. So um, it's really, it can be really interesting. Um, I think for many people, it's a stepping stone to other jobs because they get their name out there. But what was most appealing to me about it was trying to think about these really big questions, um, navigating out of lockdown and COVID. You know, we're still dealing with COVID. We're having a, 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 a sharp increase in, in cases. But how do we how do we think about a much more equitable city in a way that Eric Adams would really never occur to think, you know, in, in, ever. Um, and so I think it's a really important job. As we look at a stadium that was up, up until this two strikes went up on the board ringed by Moderna advertising all along those ribbon boards yes yes uh, there it is again um, as we've gone through that and we are in Queens now at the Mets Diamondbacks game on Tuesday night Monday no, today's Monday yeah today's Monday it was a Tuesday in 2001 uh, September 11th um I don't want to dwell on that day, but it, the mayor at the time and the mayor right now share in common that they are bozos and fascists. Um, we had kind of a doofus in between. That's not to mention our state government. Um, New York, both city and state, are such a stronghold for Democrats why why can't we get better better leaders or why yeah why is it sucking so much why, why is there so much corruption why does why does New York spit out these bozos and like Bernie Sanders who's from here is from Vermont is like you know is, I think winds up being from Vermont and this is going to be maybe an, too obvious an answer, but I think it's the overrolling influence of money. Um, there is the city, regardless of how many people talk about billionaires 
you know, really wealthy people leaving New York, we still have more billionaires per capita in New York City than anywhere else in the country. Um, there is a tremendous amount of money uh, that comes into New York, is made in New York, and flows through the city. And if it weren't Democrats, you would have the same corruption problem in the Republican Party running the city and the state as well. Um, yeah, Rudy Giuliani was not a Democrat when he was mayor. Yeah. He was a Republican then exactly. too. And, and, and I think, I think, I think what is I'm a lifelong Democrat. I always will be. Um, but I think, and I think we see at a national level as well. Um, once you get into power from the politician side, it's much more appealing to stay in power and reduce the opportunity to be challenged um, than it is to leave open doors, open questions. And I think that's when you see leaders at the city level like Giuliani, like Eric Adams, at the state level like former disgraced Governor Cuomo. They talk a good talk about what democracy and representation and our highest values look like. But at the end of the day, they know how to pull the levers of power and money to stay in power. And I think from a private sector standpoint, they just want things to run smoothly. You know, whether we're talking about real estate, commercial interests, entertainment, technology firms, they just want things to run smoothly. So there's less of an interest in what that actually looks like. They're not trying to be government. So if you have a captive audience and you say, I'll take care of your basic problems from a corporate standpoint, but we're going to run elections, we're going to make it harder to vote, we're going to make it harder to um, run for office, all of these things, that's what happens over and over and over again. You see in other states where um, a lot of money and a lot of power influence goes. California is similar. And lo and behold, you have a state capital that is very far from the center of Geographic economic power, but so much of stronghold on you know what happens in major metro areas, and I think it's a it's a real challenge to change, but it has to change because it really sucks. We've had a lot of really sucky leaders, um, even Democrats. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, Democrats that really are Republicans, like like Eric Adams. Number two. I mean, beyond Eric Adams, like. I don't know how you feel about this exactly, but the, the current governor, um, you know, handing a whole bunch of money and, you know, golly, I love sports, but the state of New York should not be spending a billion dollars, in my opinion, to give the Buffalo Bills, who last time I checked, play in the National Football League. Yes. Um, yes. The greatest money-making operation perhaps ever created. Um, yeah, give them a billion bucks so that they can replace their stadium in Orchard Park. Well, and I think there's a few things at play. So at some point, um, Giuliani had made these agreements with both the Yankees Ooh. and the Mets organization. No, that's uh, not a deep flyout. <laughs> <laughs> to get new stadiums, right, which we know ultimately happened. But there was a lot of back and forth there. Bloomberg, you know, tried to rip up some relationships, um, contracts, negotiations. But then when they tried to plan the Olympic bid for New York, that's when the stadiums came back into play. I do think sports and the attractions for them are really big anchors to cities. 
Um, but that's a not going to be Buffalo's sole way out of its um, several decades of challenges economically. Um, they don't have the population to support that kind of investment alone. Um, and I think from the current governor's standpoint, I think she was using the same playbook that the former governor had in hand. She got the same donors, she got the same process. She just wasn't doing it in a, in a, a personally abusive way, but she wasn't charting a new path. Um, and I think it's really problematic, and, and I agree that that deal really wasn't what isn't a, wasn't a good one for me. Do we want sports? Do we want major attraction cities? Yes. Do we want to invest, you know, over a billion dollars um, in, in an area that isn't right for that at this time and not being met with the necessary private sector work? No. When you talk about it from and Announcing a batter who is not coming to the plate because there was the third out of the inning. So, error to the public address announcer on that. All right, we took a little break because Mike Piazza was uh, giving a flag to a veteran who was also then a, a cop on 9-11. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a weird mood at the ballpark on this day always. I remember going to Shea Stadium um, in 2002 and I don't remember if it was on the 11th or the 10th and they didn't have a game on the 11th or what it was but like it was an afternoon mid because it was yeah it was a Wednesday because in 01 it was a Tuesday so in 02 it was a Wednesday it was a Wednesday afternoon game against the Marlins and the thing that I remember most about it is that that was the game where Mike Redman was uh, Mark Redmond was pitching. Mike Redmond was catching, and at one point, Prentice Redmond uh, batted for the Mets. So that was the Redmond, Redmond, Redmond game. That's highly confusing. It was, <laughs> and it was also um, they had like a really awkward, and it was only you know, only one year removed at the time. Um, there was like a really awkward. There's eight thousand of us here on a really dreary afternoon for two garbage teams. Um, what are we we're having a tribute like moment and it was it was strange and uncomfortable all around um, speaking of strange and uncomfortable um, I'm not going to ask you about specifics with the former governor of this state mm -hmm. but what what I am curious about your opinion on is what the way is to move forward from him and because it's not like and I, I'm fond of saying this about the current governor she's somebody who he picked yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's a lot of rot that goes down um, and that is kind of just entrenched in the state government even going back to before that dude was governor. Yeah, well, I mean, you can say the, um, you can say the, the speaker, Carl Hasty, is someone who wouldn't stand up to him. And mm -hmm. it took everyone else around him saying, no, you need to, to do um, an investigation in the assembly and actually hold up your end of the bargain. And um, I think that's why he was able to succeed in 
being a complete monster for so many years is because everyone was afraid of him. And um, he often told, uh, jokingly and, you know, in what he thought was a um, uh, humanizing way, the story of, you know, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog, which is an often told mm -hmm. kind of story. Um, and, and he really exemplified that. Um, he chose the lieutenant governor as someone who didn't, didn't threaten him. Mm -hmm. um, and before her, he had Bob Duffy, um, who was very, you know, very well liked in Rochester, he was an upstate person similarly, he felt he had to choose that. But the other part was he would never choose someone who he felt could ultimately challenge him. Um, and he would, he would often try to isolate his most ardent critics, uh, for example, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, and make him look as stupid as possible. So I think what we have in state government right now is the aftershock, whatever you want to call it, of a person who um, you know, created an entire infrastructure around his own corruption. And I'm not saying these people are corrupt, mm -hmm. but no. I'm saying they're using the same they have the same donors, they have the same processes, they're dealing with the same toxic, illogical processes, and I think that takes time to work out, and I think it takes, unfortunately, because we have, I call him like Michael from Halloween, the guy who just keeps coming back in like different iterations to try and, you know, kill people, you know, whether it's me or others, uh, in, a, in a macabre sort of like, you know, psychological way. Um, Eventually, there will be nothing else for him to do, and I think then you will see more people who are in very high positions actually really finally, you know, starting to kick out the door of some of this stuff and how he lived. I mean, you still have a speaker, you know, in Carl Hasty who uh, is unwilling to stick his neck out. I don't know what information Cuomo has on all these people. It took forever, you know, even for the Attorney General to be in a position where it seems she was able to challenge him. And I think actually in the current governor, you really don't see a lot of challenge uh, um, to the extent that probably she could. We'll see what she does with this most recent um, challenge at the state Supreme Court to the ethics um, commission that she and the legislature created that has now been you know, kicked out the door. Um, is she going to have uh, some some strength to say, "Here's a new direction," or "I'm going to challenge everything this guy did"? And my my guess is no, she's not. Um, she's not going to need to because she's interested in keeping her job, not doing something different. Um, I think it's going to take time, and I think it's going to take a few more death knells. Not like this guy doesn't already have it, but he thinks he doesn't. And so he's scaring enough people who are powerful to still not do the heavy lifting of, of totally changing the way the system works. And it's kind of disgusting. I mean, it's still relying on a bunch of, a group of women, yeah. <laughs> frankly, to be the human shields for a bunch of really powerful people. And that's, well, I don't want to go into the specifics. It's really unfortunate and kind of like what everyone thinks about politics, which is it's kind of full of um, cowards and scumbags. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, and I think the reason that it's important, too, is that it goes beyond, it goes beyond the state. Yeah. It goes beyond the specific of, you know, what you went through and, and yeah. what he put the state through. Um, I mean, we lost but, the House. I mean, I don't know if that's where you're going with this. We lost the House oh, because of our poor state management of the Democratic Party. That's not even where I'm going with it, but that's that's a, a 
fantastic point that I had. And we still have that. Decided that I would. I had gone gone past. Yeah. Have that party chair. Mm -hmm. And this current governor has been unwilling to release him because he gets her money. Mm Mm-hmm. So going back to the same model, but anyways, where were you going with this? What terrible impacts were you going to? Well, all and and here's the great 9/11 theme of this. All of the powers and abilities and executive authority conduct war that we gave to George W. Bush oh, yeah. after 9-11 that like... That sent us to the wrong country uh, with no weapons of mass destruction and yeah. killed countless Iraqis but, and also American soldiers. <laughs> but then, and I'm, I'm not usually the guy to be like, like there's a very on the left way of like talking about like people go somewhere and say Barack Obama's a war criminal I'm like alright I guess every president since Truman at least is in that case yeah. well that's the reason why we don't sign up to the criminal courts is because every president to your point would be but there is a different threshold right for right. actually saying we're open to mass destruction we're in Iraq and they weren't so um, like we give Bush all this leeway yeah once he's gone Obama or whoever else is president and I think that the last guy also kind of took advantage of this um, I mean obviously he did is this immense executive authority Yes. that then how do you rein that back in? Like the because I think there's also a very I don't know if it's an American urge or a human urge to be like all right, who's in charge here? Let's uh, that person's in charge, and we will also give them a vast amount of authority to take care of uh, doing everything. Um, yeah, well, I think it's um, and I hate to spread the responsibility even further, but um, Republican or I wouldn't even call them politicians, but kind of quote unquote thought leaders have been in playing the long game for a very long time. And so here I go to the courts, right? If we talk about the Supreme Court. We have corrupt people sitting on the Supreme Court who are bought by, you know, Nazi-loving fascists and the like. Um, we I mean, just really like, sped by that this summer, didn't we? Yeah, and then and and, and actually, not just the Supreme Court, but um, federal appellate courts, and then all of these federal courts that impact ultimately state and local decisions have been populated by the George W. Bush appointees much more um, insidious, the Donald Trump appointees. For example, the person who just today decided that the former governor could not be held accountable for making $5 million off of a book he wrote in COVID um, because the ethics commission that was recreated to be responsive to the concerns of like, you know, separation of powers didn't have any authority. And why do I go to the courts on this? Because you can have a political process that spreads authority and does try to respond to the public's interest. And then what we're seeing at a federal level that trickles down to state decision-making is that courts are saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you legislate if it conflicts with this long game that has been played by picking people out at law schools across the country that we will put in positions of power um, down the line, whether we talk about things like Citizens United, we talk about overturning Roe v. Wade, we talk about um, questioning the impl- implication of corruption, overturning corruption charges against some of the, you know, 
the cohort around Andrew Cuomo that were clearly self-dealing in state government. Mm -hmm. um, you can try to actually undo some of these things, but if you have, and you have the political will to do it, and you have the support from people, but then you have a court system that is, is like firmly against what people are trying to move to, it's a real problem. And so, you know, we, I think that there is a lot of public will behind ending corruption, ending like unneed influence of, corp, you know, hidden corporate interests, um, going against the will of people's interests. I mean, the vast majority of people want women to have abortion access and rights, right? It's just what it is. But if you have a court system that is playing a different game and has a different boss, it is going to take a really long time to undo that. And unfortunately, you have an, what, an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old? I have a nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. The courts at the highest level are set up for the rest of their lives, basically, to make decisions that influence the rest of their lives. So we're gonna have a bunch of challenges that I think my lifelong passion is politics, as much as I may hate the reality of, of, of what it requires to be in politics. I love the act of you know, doing this work for the public, but we're not gonna be able to do any of that if we don't contend with the reality of the court system that is in many ways undoing a lot of the work that actually the majority of New Yorkers, the majority of Americans think is probably necessary. And that's my like soapbox stand, you know, thing, which is a big challenge, but I think it's a big part of it. Okay. I appreciate all of that and I don't <laughs> want to just, I don't want to just rush over it. No, that's fine. We can just um, that one. Because <laughs> you, but you just said it, so I'll, I'll give everybody a chance to digest it. Um, while I ask you this, based on that and what we were talking about as we walked around the concourse during the rain delay, this concept that we have around Willits Penn of that we keep coming back to loving something that doesn't love you back. Yeah. And <laughs> politics oh, yeah. is not designed to love you back. No, it's pretty it's like it's like hugging a bomb. <laughs> in some respects. I mean it depends who you are in the in the process. But um, no it doesn't. I would say it certainly hasn't it, it certainly has not loved me back. Um, <laughs> so what keeps you at it? You know, people are like, well, when are you going to run again? Or when are you going to do this? Or can you can you engage in this? Or And um, I don't really have an answer for any of that because the idea of having to... I don't have an answer for that. But when I wake up in the morning and when I go to sleep at night, the things that are most emotionally and intellectually interesting to me are about politics. How, even if it's not working well, the whole point in my mind is how do you design a system that prioritizes people who are the least advantaged in it? And whether we're talking about how urban planning works, whether we're talking about you know sound or light ordinances around a stadium, how do you design something that works for the most people and increases the quality of life if you're not a rich, well-off person? I just that I lose so much growing up. To me. Um, it shouldn't have to be a lottery system of if you live in a good school district. It shouldn't have to be a lottery system if your mom or dad knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. And um, I think the things we end up being passionate about are something that like hits us where 
it hurts and and where it's creative and and for me fortunately or unfortunately that has always been and will always probably be poli I don't I want to say politics but um, who gets what and how and that's really what politics is about and how could it work better and you know your sense of injustice where do you go if you have a sense of injustice you go to politics at least that's what I think Ooh, it, it is true I think that that's possibly a fundamental flaw in our system that where you go is is politicized and not just an idea of overarching public good that we can all agree on yeah well I think I think if like I think if we got a bunch of people from this stadium in a room, we could say, well, what is most important? You know, how do we do this? I think, actually, a lot of people could agree on some basic mm -hmm. things. Um, and then we would say, how do you overlay it, that into a system where you have people with no term limits who can spend their whole lives there, who have no incentive to leave, who only reap quote-unquote monetary benefits having served a whole life in it and it starts to really warp what ends up being focused on whether it's actually the elective process or the process of um, being effective in politics and what that looks like I mean let's look Ooh, Ooh. that could go something that fascinates me as a person who has always been super into the game and like collected baseball cards since I was three and like, continues in this world that like this is something that can be fun and enjoyable for you having next to no knowledge 100% which is That's a unique thing about sports, because, like, with, you know, even in the course of this game, we have not really been paying attention to this game. The Mets have been garbage for months. Um, we're here to have a good time, watch occasionally some dude hit a ball over the wall. You, you can't get, like, you can't go to the movies and yeah. be like, yeah, let's just have a nice chat and... Uh, Occasionally, we'll, we'll, we'll look up for the chase scene. Yeah. I think, I mean, sports is like that, and you'll you'll educate me beyond baseball. But baseball is really very special. Yes. Like, okay, I, I didn't grow up being, like, a super baseball fan. But I grew up in San Diego, and the Padres, everyone knew who they were. And I went mm -hmm. to games with my family. We, we didn't even always have tickets to the game, but we would go to the parking area. Yeah. And it would be the camaraderie, and it would be so fun 
a sport that I think most Americans have an idea of, whether it's, you know, I don't want to date myself here, but a league of their own, field of dreams, like you have a sport that people have a sense of, even if they don't know the ins and outs. And it's kind of magical. And it's long enough where you can kind of dip in and out if, you know, I don't want to be like sacrilegious for like real baseball fans, but it's fun. And even the stadiums in cities, you see them, they're not covered up. Like you see, you can see they're designed in a way where you see kind of what's going on. Mm -hmm. It radiates out of the stadium. And it has this really inclusive, I mean, you'll probably tell me how it's not because you know everything, but it has a sense of being inclusive um, and kind of something that everyone can be part of. I think, you know, I think you've hit on something which is a big criticism of Yankee Stadium specifically is that it's not inclusive. Yeah, it's, shut, it's a bit shut off. It's, it's shut off both, it doesn't have, you know, there's no, you look around this ballpark and the decks don't go all the way around and it's not walled at the back yeah. the way that Yankee Stadium is with the big yeah. boards. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, maybe that's because that, like I'm an urban planner and that's the kind of thing you think about, you know, access and circulation and how it connects to an area. Wait, I don't want to talk about Fenway Park, but it's really part of the street, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think some of the, that's what, one of the reasons why I love this stadium so much. It feels like it's inviting you in even if you don't have a ticket to the to the to the game which is a funny thing for a ballpark that is not in an actual neighborhood yeah um, it it's is it's one hopeful. of the successes of this place it's hopeful it's hopeful and, and and you know i know there is a lot going on in the neighborhood around but it's not necessarily huge residential it's not yeah. you know 24 hours activity like let's say where the yankee stadium is right The Yankee Stadium is in the Bronx, very much, and yet at the same time feels like such its own entity that, like, even what's a, directly across Jerome Avenue doesn't feel like part of the same place. Well, and at least in my view, and I don't know what the conversations were at the time of... Um and so, you know, I, I, I may not be missing some nuance here, but I feel like they missed an opportunity to much more directly engage the community. Maybe there were issues of sound and lighting and noise pollution, um, but I think there are ways to work around that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, that there are probably ways to, you know, and they're probably dealing with different parcels. They were, I just know they're dealing with different parcel land, but this one, maybe because there was more opportunity or more space, it's more inviting yeah, for the future. This was a little bit easier of a lift, I think, from an urban planning standpoint than, yeah. than Yankee yeah. Stadium was. Yeah. I think that's fair to say, right. but they the still... The built environment is very different. Um, they still botched Yankee Stadium. I don't think anybody's arguing <laughs> that point. Like that, well, this that is a really sucks. special place. Yeah. Like, I really think that they, they hit it out of the park here.
that too with with baseball is that like even with a small crowd, like you get a big moment like that, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Um, obviously, I, I think that it's it's been something that people have been over time and again. That like every time there's somebody who puts out a stadium study, it's like we're going to have this much economic impact oh, on the yeah, neighborhood. Yeah. It's yeah. it's always bonk. Yeah, it is. But when you're making that kind of connection with the neighborhood, is there? Do, do you think that there is that it's How much can you actually can can you sway that at all? So that I mean, like in the case of Yankee Stadium, they didn't work well, particularly with the parking operators in the area, and that has made things even worse for yes. for that whole thing. Yes. What? And I don't know what your specific pitch of urban planning is, but like, what what makes a successful grand gathering spot yeah. in, a, in an urban area? Well, I think, you know, there's a, a few things. And, you know, I haven't looked. One, I, I would assume whenever city or whoever, you know, when they renegotiate this deal, they should be paying a lot more annually, is my guess. $20 million sounded like a lot when, when the contract was negotiated. I think it probably should be more now. Um, and that's probably small compared to the carrying costs of the stadium itself, but that's an aside. In... in I don't know what that is. In the realm of um, urban planning that I've spent the majority of my career, at least the first 10 years, was in parks and public spaces. So it was how do you bring parks and public spaces together. And a lot of what what we know about spaces that work is they're not all organized by activity, meaning you have different activities at different times of day. So the idea of civic centers is actually not ideal because it just brings, think about, um, uh, near the Washington Monument in D.C. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful, wouldn't change them. However, when Congress, when when politics is not in session and when people aren't going to the Smithsonian, there's a lot of dead time. There's a lot of, you know, you don't want to segment activities in a way where you have a lot of I have been on the mall ends. at night in winter and it is... Um, probably feel unsafe, right? Not because you're seeing something bad, but because there's not a lot of positive activity, right? We, we felt like we were just going to, like, freeze and die out there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and then nobody would find us until we were icicles the next morning. Exactly. You know, I don't know that that would be the case. However, I would say one of the, one of the hallmarks of good public spaces and cities is diversity of activity and people. And that leads into all kinds of values that I believe in as a, as a progressive. But um, this is a great part. I think the dream of having more affordable, more mixed-use activity around it that isn't led by developers, but by is community-driven, which is a real hard ask, a real hard you know, thing to actually achieve, is important because then you don't just have this space in use at certain segments, right, certain times of day. I mean, you can activate the stadium and the space for all kinds of uses itself, but you still want to have different types of activities and different types of people using the surrounding area at all times. Um, So you never want to restrict use or limit uses of an area, you know, the the more the better. Um, This is a very small scale, but my first first, less than decade in New York, I managed Bryant Park and public spaces. the safest spaces were always spaces where there were lots of people. 
you weren't worried about someone experiencing homeless being next to you. They were running their own, you know, they were doing their own thing. There wasn't this negativity about other people in public spaces because everyone was there, right? And and that makes people feel safe. So that I think is like one of the key tenets. Um, you know, just good negotiating tactic. If a company feels like they got a good deal, either from the development standpoint, as a developer, or from a corporate standpoint, it probably means they screwed over the city or local government. So, you know, everyone should kind of walk away feeling they got the short end of the stick. And, and that rarely happens, I would say, in the city of New York. Um, I'm, in I'm, most cities. Yeah. Um, how am I? How are we going to have faith in, like, a cool, mixed-use, nice, dense, Bullets Point neighborhood when we can't get benches in our train station? Like, yeah, that's, well, and, um, and when the mayor is completely bought by real estate developers. Like, I, I think... I don't... He's... He's going to run for re-election. That's going to oh, be no, a I fucking think, thing, isn't it? No, I think the worst part is that given the systems we have in place and the political process even run by the Democratic Party, he's going to win, barring some major issue. He will win, no question. And I think that is what I was going back to about all these systems that like lead to inertia, um, making it harder to vote, making it opaque, the system, you know, how it all works, um, how you register as a Democrat or how you register in a primary, why we have certain systems in place. Um, but I think... Okay, this, this might be the, the Twitter is not real life thing, yeah. but at the same time, I don't know anybody in real life who liked the previous governor, and yeah. Um, yeah. he waltzed to re-election in his final campaign. Um, I don't know anybody who doesn't think that Eric Adams is, and this is like in and out of New York. This dude is a national, like, he's a punchline. Yeah, yes. But you are just like, yeah, he's getting reelected, no problem. And well, I, I, I and I'm yes. not even yeah, like, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed to hear it. I mean, you know, stranger thing, there's always an exception to a rule. But mm -hmm. um, knowing what I know, having, and actually, you know, it would be more fun to win elections. But having run two different elections in very different contexts as like kind of the upstart candidate, I learned a lot about the electoral process, which being a giant nerd that I am was an incredibly, you know, instructive process. Even the process of counting votes. Um, I do, I will say, my concerns about democracy are not in running safe and fair elections. They're in actually accessing voting. But do we have good voting processes that are nonpartisan? Yes. I've done the vote pilot. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about making it such a behemoth to engage in the political process that people think there's no point in doing so. And that is the inertia that leads to a consistent re-election of um, cronies like Eric Adams. I mean, honestly, that's, that's an interesting point that you raise because I'm in a position now where I just finished a year of, of work for a government agency yep. with the MTA, finished my contract. Um, By the way, they, you know, they, there was some really, I can't remember his name, Train Daddy. Was Andy like, Byford. He was one of our greatest talents, and he was scared away uh -huh. by the former governor of New York. Uh -huh. He was one of our true greatest public servants. And, and I will say, people at the MTA 
still have a great reverence for him. I and did, and I wasn't at the MCA. Yeah. I just worked tangentially. Yeah, I met him at a bar. He was really cool, like at a somebody's going away party. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and ideas, and I'm pretty smart and a nerd and have, you know, background in, you know, I studied American history in college, I've been in journalism in the city, I've lived here my whole life. Yeah. I am probably the profile of somebody who should be thinking about getting involved in government. Yeah. And yet the first thing that I asked you, or one of the first things I asked you on this show was, what kind of absolute nut, and I say this as somebody who is like a self-identified absolute nut in a yeah. different way, yeah. it is so, like, we get the, like, oh boy, like, I, sh I should be, like, in a normal functioning, yeah. I should be like, Oh yeah, I should like maybe think about getting in. And, and you like, should. You should. I don't want to scare you away from that just because I should, the experiences are terrible. I should <laughs> call my city council person and ask to maybe like do something for them. That's totally different. I don't want to be an office holder, that, but like, yeah. But like, I just... But by the way, don't tell them that you would ever be interested in running for office because then they'll never put you on the community board. I would, they'll feel threatened by you. I would absolutely not want to run for office. I can't think of anything. I'm just saying this is the system that begets yeah. more um, toxicity because it's like any of my friends who's... What I would say for you is then you should you know join and lead the community board because if you didn't want to run for office but you wanted to have an impact, you know, zoning issues... Um, you know, important planning, historic preservation, parks and, you know, all these things are, if you want to be engaged in that in the city level, you join a community board. But you better not look like you actually would be someone who may want to run for office before because the, then your local elected is not going to allow you, they're going to block you from, from being on it, which several of my friends that has happened to. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, want a friend get a dog in politics and that is truly there's like what is what was that show with the serial killer dexter whatever that show sure was? yeah there is an element to a certain person that either is in politics or some people become that is kind of like the opposite of what the point is right um and i think that's unfortunate and it probably keeps good people like you from wanting to engage it because you you may not know exactly what's happening it's like I grew up in the ocean. You may not know what's under there, but you're like, I think there's a sting under there, and I don't, I don't want to walk over there. But you see something dark, and that happens in politics. You're like, I kind mm -hmm. of get the vibe that there's something like going on over there, and it turns a lot of people off, and that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> my own personal situation. Like, I, I actually like the people who represent me right now. Who, who are your? I know you have. Jessica Ramos at the state level, which I, is great. I don't. Um, oh, she's, you don't. She's in this district. Oh, that's right. Okay, I got um, confused. In my district, um, I have Zoran Mandami. Oh, yeah, um, great. Is my assembly representative. Well, actually, that's one of the few cases I would say where kind of like bucking the establishment has worked. Yeah. I think, um, I think Queens has been the, like, the foil to everything I'm talking about. Not in every case, but... Queens, for any number of reasons that I think it would take a whole conversation to dissect, 
has, you know, the young reformer, the new reformers, there's been a lot of activity challenging the status quo and the political machine. And I yeah. think, so I think there is some, some movement so there. I'm just south of AOC's district, yeah. but the last round of redistricting did get me into Tiffany Caban's district, which was... Which is great. Which was really cool, because, um, like, before she was even, like, a city council... Maybe she was a city council candidate at the time. Whatever it was, it was maybe like... Maybe she was running for uh, DA at the I time? I think she was running... Maybe she was running for DA at the time. Um, we had, like, a Halloween bike ride, um, and she was at it and my daughter got up like on the little rock where people were giving speeches and she said a whole thing about like how we need more bike lanes oh my god that's so um, wonderful it was adorable so she's gonna be doing the thing eventually she's gonna do the probably. thing probably she she likes drama and yelling so hey um, i feel like her and my daughter would get along <laughs> the thing with that is that it's like maybe you feel maybe you've experienced this with your own child um when they're that similar, like, they either get along amazing yeah. or not at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, so my daughter goes in two modes. She's like, we need to have a club so that I can boss everyone around within it. Mm -hmm. So there's that, I think, is what you're talking about. And then there's, like, a meeting the minds where they fight and then they're best friends. So I think it's, like, it can be one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I was pretty much, I, I was kind of like that a little bit. Yeah. Two maybe as a kid. Um, I was an only child, which she's got a different dynamic with a younger brother who yeah. would love to be here right now just because he loves baseball. Actually, I will say that my daughter, when I told her I was coming, because she's yeah. got a real interest in base, I just, yes. baseball, it's not something. She's like, well, why can't I go? And I was like, well, this is, I'm going to be doing this, you know, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert, so I don't want to look bad. And, and that's why I promised I'd get her a t shirt. So she wanted to come. She's actually a great hitter. and when she was little, I was I used to be able to take her all over the state when I was Secretary for Economic Development and because she wasn't in school yet. And every year I would take her to Cooperstown. So there's like twenty shots of me and her in front of Cooperstown. We would do the like the the, the peaches, we went to the little that little baseball diamond, whatever. Double that day is. field? Yes. yes. Excuse me. Um, she loves it too, like your son. My daughter also loves it. She loves to come to the games. It's um, so fun. And loved playing baseball until um, she got hit in the face by a throw from her brother. Uh, <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. Uh, no, we'll, we'll be all out here uh, this weekend to kind of bid summer a, a sort of farewell. And yeah, school started this week and all that. But yeah, let's, let, let's, tie it up on, on baseball and on you know it might not love me back but it's still yeah. um, it's still something to love regardless of you know what your involvement level is with it and, and I yeah. I like that and I feel like you know the the success of this stadium too is you know the, the whole alley behind us with all the food and it's yes. just Yeah, there's there's baseball, and the baseball might be good, the baseball might be bad, but you're going to see a game. You're probably going to see something weird because it's the Mets, and you'll get to have, like, this experience, and that's something that the Yankees have cultivated something very different, that you are going to see the tourist attraction that is the New York Yankees, whereas here you're 
you're seeing something that's more it is more community of a vibe like the Mets are more of a community team and I'm glad that we've been able to have this conversation so that I could then talk my way through that I love it and get to that because so much of this for me too has been and what Willits Penn and Willits Pod will continue to be is um, sorting out what these fandoms are because they're they're complicated it's not always as easy as just gee I love the Mets no I will say this also, you know, mm-hmm. um, I really, if you ask me all the ins and outs of baseball, I couldn't tell you all the rules, but I feel a real deep affinity for it, and I didn't, you know, from San Diego originally, so the Padres, right, I told you I got Bip Roberts, yeah. ball. When San Diego lost the Chargers, I had lived in San Diego for over two decades, mm-hmm. and it hurt. It hurt that we lost them. That was a and weird think, sound off of that. I think, you know, you don't even realize how important a professional sports team is to a community. And especially New York. Like, I think people still talk about the Dodgers, right? Yeah. And it feels like a loss. And I think... And they you know, left in 1957. Yeah. And so when you talk about the value, it is... How do you put a price tag on it? Now, of course, from a negotiating standpoint and what you expect public to put into these things... There has to be real conversation around it, but the incalculable piece is—it is a huge part of New York. The Mets are New York. The Yankees are New York too, um, and and I can't imagine this not being a central piece of the New York experience. And so it's—it is wonderful. And I bet you a ton of these people at the stadium have never even played baseball, never even picked up baseball, and that is wonderful and magical too. For sure. You know, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, and you, that that brings it back to the the urban planning part of it, which is that what always what the, for me at least in my memory of what's always gotten brought up is Cleveland yeah. and the success that like of that stadium and of redeveloping downtown Cleveland sort of around that stadium. Yeah, and. And by the way, I've been in that area. The challenges of Cleveland are just... Oh, yeah. The economic, kind of the... It's, it's not the same as Detroit, but when you have a city that's lost so much activity, it's going to take so much activity to return to just the physical space. You could say yeah. this You could say this for a, a little bit about Detroit, too. Yeah. And when they built the new stadium for the Tigers. Yeah. Um, or actually, it took a little more time after that. But, like, the... The rehabilitation, like the, the, with Cleveland it was stark because they built a new stadium and the team got good at the same time. And yeah. they saw, they had a record streak of sellouts because the team was good. Yeah. And then they stopped putting money into the team and the team kind of fell off and it's not as big a deal anymore. Um, you know, obviously wrong is a big deal, but like it's, it's not the stadium that does it. It's the thing that's in the stadium. And having something that will actually bring people to that area to go to the restaurants and bars. And by the way, if you have a few things, so you have um, the Cleveland Clinic, but the location of that mm-hmm. is too far out from the, 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 the downtown core, I think. 
you have a number of these things that work together, and that is kind of the magic of urban planning, right? Like you can't just do one or the other, and that's why I think that's the that's the false sort of like if you build a stadium and it will fix everything else, and I think that's where they run into trouble. But it is a huge part of it. Right? Why East Rutherford, New Jersey, is such a thriving and vibrant. I went to the Beyonce concert over there, and it was, it was a real, you know, you're out there. You're out there. It's a challenge to get back to you know, activities. I, last night for the for the Giants-Cowboys game was the first time that I took the train out there since... I the, should do that next time. It was really good. I don't know um, if at the end of an exciting game, if it's as smooth of a process. Yeah. But with um, pretty much everybody having left by the end of the game, I walked right to the train, got a seat, and I was back at Penn Station in 45 minutes. No I will problem. say it's like, it is easier to get to, it, I live on the west side of Manhattan, so it's much easier to get the air train to Newark Airport than it is for me to get to JFK. And sometimes that is that way, you know, the New Jersey Transit or the spur for that is sometimes easier. I'm surprised by that with LIR going out to Jamaica, but that is something that we can. Uh, well, you're on the you're on the other side. We can continue to nerd about <laughs> nerd out about this off there. Lindsay Boylan, where can uh, where can the people find you? Well, right and now, what you're up to? Right now on Twitter, I'm I'm, I'm taking my time and uh, doing fun things like this until until I become more glutton for punishment in the future and you know get more directly back into it. But they can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Lindsay Boylan. For now, that's it. Find me in all the usual places and at willspen at substack.com. Um, willspen.substack.com and willspen.com. This has been Pot of the Park, and this is Brandon Nimbo's Engine Music playing us out.